Okay, if you could kind of make your way back to your seats. And I am going to ask Tim to come up and read our scripture passage for this evening. Okay, our scripture passage is Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace." And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, that as we're going to talk about tonight, that we would see um, perhaps the gospel more clearly, um, that you would maybe um, work in us uh, in such a way that um, aspects of the gospel that we leave, um, that we put to the side or we do not emphasize, God, um, God, that you would open our hearts and our attention to those things um, so that um, as we as we share and as we talk with others about the gospel, God, as we believe the gospel in, in our own lives, rightly and we would understand it rightly. Father, we cannot do this without the power of the Holy Spirit working through us. And so we pray that uh, you would illuminate um, this text in our lives, um, that the Holy Spirit would shine light on it, that we would understand it truly and rightly, and that you would use it to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. 
um, look down. Um, now, obviously, we've got kind of a big section. I mean, there's a good, good section of, of, of Scripture that we had tonight. And kind of some of the stuff that we've been talking about over the last few weeks, oftentimes when we come to a passage, there is a distinction between what the passage is intending to do um, and then at the same time, what we can glean from it can be something different. And so it's sort of like last week when we were talking about that idea of, you know, as uh, the scriptures referring to these to these children who are in the wombs of, of Elizabeth and Mary, that it doesn't talk about them like they are non-entities. It doesn't talk about them like they are clumps of cells or, or um, not um, people. It talks about them like they are people. They're people who recognize and can hear and listen and perceive and all these things like that. Now, that's not what that passage is about, but it's something that we glean from that passage as we talk. Again, I think in this passage, it's doing some of the same things that we have talked about already, right? So one of the things that's going on is, is this passage is continuing to set up themes that we're going to be seeing throughout the book of Luke. Um, it's introducing major characters, right? So this is the first place that we see um, John the Baptist actually um, here or whatever, right? Um, it's drawing lines of connection between the Old Testament, um, the God who moved and worked among the people of Israel, and the New Testament, and the advent of Jesus, and the fulfillment of the prophecies that connect the New Testament and the Old Testament, right? And so it's doing some of the same things that we've talked about all these other passages in Luke so far doing. Um, but it does it in a specific way in which we also learn some other things while we're reading it, right? And one of the things that I think we notice is we learn a whole lot about the gospel when we read this passage. Because we're seeing in this, in this prophecy two things going on, okay? Um, this passage is called the Benedictus. And you remember I said each one of these sections in, in Luke chapter 1 has special names, okay? The Benedictus comes from that first word that is in this passage, blessed, right? In his prophecy, blessed um, be the God of Israel, right? And so th- that idea is... is he is thanking God for something, right? And then what he does is he talks about this general passage that although it, it specifically is, is pointing towards Jesus in different ways, it's also sort of more broadly talking about the way God has worked in, in, in the history of Israel. But then also he goes on to zoom in specifically on John and give a prophecy about John and his role um, in the things that are going to take place in, in, the, in the near future. But in both cases, those things all revolve around the concept of the gospel, right? The saving work of God in the lives of his nation and ultimately in all people, okay? And so what we're going to do is kind of look at the passage, and, and, and even though, again, he's, he's doing other things in the text, we're going to use it as a way to look at the gospel, kind of draw out a couple of things about the gospel that maybe we have um, ignored or shifted from or de-emphasized or things like that um, so that we can know the gospel better and believe it rightly. And so we started off this sort of narrative section at the beginning that talks about the birth of John the Baptist. And so in verse 57, again, it says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives had heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by that name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted them to be called. Remember, because John, uh, I mean, Zechariah is mute. He has been mute since the prophecy was given that that um, Elizabeth would would conceive a child. And because of his unbelief, he was he was stricken with with being mute in that time. 
And so it says, uh, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered at this. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke and blessed God. And fear came on all the neighbors. And all these things were talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him, right? So, so just as sort of an intro to this whole text, right? These miraculous events are happening around the birth of John the Baptist, okay? His very conception was miraculous. This fact that when Zachariah had gone into the temple, all of a sudden he was struck mute, and that was weird. And then they knew that something must have happened while he was in that holy place. Remember we talked about how it was that one, he was the one guy who got to go in on that day and offer incense before the Lord. And so... He had been in the holy place in the temple, not the holy of holies, not where the ark was, but that, that, that main room, and, and something had happened. And he had, they knew that he had seen a vision, in this case an angel, um, but he had been stricken mute. And then when the child is, is given his name, all of a sudden, Zechariah can speak again, and he confirms that the child is going to be named John. All these crazy things are going on around the birth of John the Baptist, okay? And, and I wanted to point out just something kind of as an aside. Uh, All these miraculous things are happening because they are giving validity to the fact that God is working. Okay, That's actually what miracles tend to be about in the New Testament, right? Like we think about miracles functionally being like presents. Okay, we're sort of like, oh, God does miracles sometimes. He gives us a miracle and does something, um, and it's and it's like just a good present for us. Like it's something that blesses us. Okay, and then we kind of wonder, how come God doesn't give us more good things, right? Like how come He doesn't do miracles all the time? Every kind of situation we have in our life with healing or blessing or these different things. But I think this is part of the reason why. That's why not, not really the function of miracles. Miracles aren't there to be your little special thing that you have or whatever. Miracles are always pointing or usually pointing to the working of God to give credence to the working of God. Okay. So what that means is this. is You don't see... Um, obviously, there's all kinds of ways that we could talk about miracles. There are, there are very subtle miracles in our lives, right? And then there are miracles that seem subtle even though big things are going on. So salvation, when somebody trusts in the Lord and, and, and is reborn, right, that is a miracle happening in our midst. But, it's, but in some ways it's a very normal miracle, right? It's part of the way that God has designed the church to continue to function and stuff. But when we see miracles happening around us, things that circumstances line up and things happen that you go, man, there's no way this could have happened outside of the providence of God, those things are there to make you stop and go, God is at work here. Right? It's not like God just going, here's a Mercedes, you know, you got a fun little car now, it's a miracle, right? He doesn't do that. That's not the way God typically works. He brings miracles around things where he says, hey, look, everybody focus on this right here. I want you to see something. I'm giving credence. It's not a present, it's a proof. Okay? It's an evidence that God is working. And that's what's going on in this passage. And we know it worked. You know why? Because everybody in the community, in the hill country, all around the, the area were saying, who is this child going to be? Like he's obviously somebody special. God is obviously working in this kid's life in a unique way because all these crazy things have gone on around the birth of this child, right? That's the way God uses miracles, okay? And then notice this one other thing. Why would maybe God be all of a sudden throwing some miracles into this situation? Well, we've talked about it before because God has been silent for 400 years, right? He hasn't been talking to his people in in 
miraculous ways for 400 years at this point, right? And so now that he is bringing these prophecies to fulfillment, he's, he's instituting this new thing that we will call the church age, right? He's, a, he, these other things are happening around it to give credence to the fact that something new is happening, right? Jesus' whole ministry is backed up by his miracles, not just so that Jesus can dole out cool little things to people or whatever, but to prove that he really is who he says he is, all right? And so that's how miracles work. Another piece to that is remember this. There's been this long gap that they have been waiting and waiting for God to do something, and now he is. So admittedly, like for us, we are in the season of Advent. In the prayer, at the beginning of the service, we're talking about the return of Jesus and that we should be waiting with expectancy for the coming of Jesus at any time. But we all have to recognize the fact that we go, yeah, but it's been 2,000 years, right? Like expectancy is a great word, Ash, but how expectant are we going to be when... You know, hundreds of generations have been born, lived, and died, and Jesus has not returned yet. Well, recognize they were in the exact situation, same situation in this passage, right? Um, God had made these promises to Israel during the life of Abraham. Abraham had lived roughly 2,000 years before the coming of the Messiah, right? And so these same promises were the things that the Israelites had been hearing for generations, that God is going to come, that he's going to redeem us, that he's going to do all these things amongst us, that, that he's going to draw his people back to themselves. And they were in the same situation we were in. And yet in their own time, it's finally happening, right? Now they are finally seeing these things happen. And, and basically we're in the same situation, right? So the Bible even tells us that it's probably the case that in the end times, right, at the at, at close to the coming of Jesus Christ, we will probably start to see some more miraculous things going on, right, that will confirm the coming of Jesus into the world. So those are just kind of some general things that set up the passage. But I want to look now at, at, at this, this, this passage that we call the Benedictus, right? The, the prophecy that Zechariah gives when suddenly he is able to talk again, okay? And the first thing that we notice about it, the first thing that we kind of, the first section is this plan of salvation that, that we are given insight into. So in verse 30, uh, 67, it says, and, and his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, right? So he's speaking um, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Okay, so thanks be to God, right? Blessed, blessed be God. That's what it's talking about. It's, it's, it's exalting God and saying, God, you're awesome, but for two very specific reasons. One, that he has visited his people, and one, that he has redeemed his people. Right? So you could say, one, that he has come close to us, two, that he has paid the price for us. So the first thing, right, that idea of God visiting us, God has come down to his people. We are separated from him. He is way up there in holiness. We are way down here in our sin. But we have been visited by God. God has come down to meet us and interact with us. Pretty much every religion in the world talks in terms of how do we get to God, right? Like how do we ascend? How do we find God? The Christian faith says the opposite. Um, you don't find God, right? God finds you. It is God that comes down and becomes incarnate and steps into humanity, not you ascending somehow um, to divinity to get to God first, okay? And so, so 
Zechariah blesses God and he says, you are the God who has visited us. You are the God who has come down to find us and to be with us, right, to interact with us. But not just that, he has redeemed as well. He's a visiting God and he's a redeeming God. So that redemption word connects all the kind of language with slavery, right, and capture, okay, this idea of ransom. Right? You must be rescued out of something, and there has to be a price paid to do that. That's how redemption works, right? You redeem something, you buy them back out of something, okay? And so this is the God who has not only come to us and visited us, he is the God who has paid a price for us to be brought back to himself. Now notice, just those two words alone, if we stopped right there, those two words alone would tell us a whole lot, number one, about the character of God, and number two, about the character of the gospel, about the message of salvation, about what has actually taken place here. Because, you see, here's part of the problem. There's a lot of the church and a lot of the world um, that, that, that doesn't get one of those two ideas, or at least that those one of those two ideas don't make a lot of sense for. Because, for example, if we see God um, in a way that probably much of the church does, a God who just wants to accept us, right? A God who just loves us and wants to be with us and wants to embrace us and just wants to accept us as we are, you know, and kind of bro out with us, right? And just like sit and hang out and be with us all the time. Well, then, when we read a passage like this, we go, well, cool. Visitation makes a lot of sense in that picture, right? A God that just comes down to earth because he just wants to be with his people. That makes sense. But redemption doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Because there's not anything that needs to be bought back. That God's already cool with us, right? What does he need to redeem if he's just coming down here to accept and to love us and to be with us? All right? And then conversely, the opposite of that, if we had a God like... Allah, or like we talked about last week, uh, Marduk of of the Babylonians or whatever, Um, he could engage with us as slaves, and then the idea of redemption might have a certain kind of sense to it, right? Because that God would come down and purchase us as his servants, right? Redemption could still include the concept of slavery within it, okay? But there would be no concept of visitation, like... Allah doesn't want to hang out with his people. He doesn't want to be with them. He doesn't want to be intimately involved in their lives and to care and to have fellowship with those people. Um, there's no presence with them. There's only servitude, right? And so the idea that we have a God and that we bless God because he has visited us and he has redeemed us tells us something about the kind of God we have. And it also tells us about the gospel and the mission that he has come for, right? He has not just come to redeem us, but he's come to be with us. And he's not just come to be with us, but he's come to buy us out of something that we are stuck in. And what Paul, uh, what, uh, what Luke is pointing us to in this passage is that that visitation and redemption, that salvation is the way God's always been. Okay? That has always been his character. He's always been a God who is interacting with his people and trying to, um, to, to redeem them in, in, in some kind of way. And so, again, notice Zachariah's praise is very much focused on language that points us both explicitly and implicitly to the God of the Old Testament, to the promises that God has made, specifically all the way back to the promises that God made to Abraham at the beginning of the people of of, uh, the Jewish nation, nation. Because God has always been this kind of God. 
Okay, sometimes we get that language in the church where we say, oh man, the Old Testament is about law and the New Testament is about grace. God was like all big and scary in the Old Testament and he's all Jesus-y and close in the New Testament. Wrong. That's not accurate. God has always been the same God he's always been, right? That makes sense. God can't, he doesn't change. And so he's always been that kind of God. And so in verse 69 it says, And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This is both looking backwards and looking to now. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Again, looking all the way backwards to verse 73, to the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, right? So that final idea that we would be delivered out of the hand of our enemies, um, immediately... As you read this passage, your, your attention, your imagination should be cast back to those chapters in Genesis, somewhere around like 12 through uh, probably like 25 or something in there, where God is talking to Abraham and making these promises to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob. Um, especially that idea of being freed from your enemies, giving safety from your enemies. Listen to this prophecy that comes from Genesis chapter 22 that that God gives to Abraham. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of your enemies, right? That is a picture of the idea of conquest of your enemies, that your enemies won't be attacking your gates, right? You will control your enemies. Um, You won't have to worry about them anymore. And in your offspring shall all the nations of earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Okay, and so that is the only of the pro- one of the prophecies that there's specifically language about victory over your enemies in Abraham's um, the, the promises that are made to Abraham. Okay, and it's interesting. Guess where that prophecy is? It's in Genesis 22. But guess where Genesis 22 is? Genesis 22 is the story of when Abraham sacrifices Isaac. Okay, And so in the midst of this story where God shows up and says, don't kill your child, I will provide the sacrifice, I will give you, I will be the one who sacrifices so that you can be made right, so that the covenant can be assured, and then he gives this promise about saying, I will give you victory over your enemies in the, in the gates of your enemies. Think about the connections there, right? So... God could have brought up all kinds of things from the Old Testament, and yet he reminds us of a story where God is the one who provides the sacrifice. God is the one who gives the redemption price to buy back his people. In the midst of telling us that it is now happening that God is sending his Messiah into the world, right? All these connections are being made there. He doesn't just come out and say, yeah, Jesus is going to come and he's going to die for your sins. He doesn't say that. But he's drawing um, our attention and connections to all of these things as we go. And so the salvation that is coming will be a function of sacrifice. The redemption that is coming will be God's sacrifice on behalf of men. But we have to ask ourselves a question, and this this passage continues to sort of point us to those things. Saved to what? Right? Sometimes that's a question that we leave out even in our own evangelism. We're telling people the gospel. What are people saved to? We're saved by Jesus. We're saved. But what are we saved to? Like, what is God saving us for? He didn't just save you so that you could be free unto yourself and to live as you please. He saved you for a very specific purpose. And Zechariah mentions it right here in this passage in verse 74. 
He saved us. Why? He redeems us and visits us. Why? That we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Okay, why are we being saved? Why are we? Why is God visiting us and, and, and intimately connecting us? Why are we being bought back with this incredibly costly sacrifice so that we could serve Him without fear, in holiness and righteousness all of our days? That's the that's the saved to right? Not not the saved itself, not the saved from, but but why are we saved to? We are saved to. This goal, okay? Having been delivered from the hands of our enemies, God wants us to be able to serve him without fear, right? To align our lives with his mission, but not fear the the judgment that our lives deserve. To experience a fatherly love in all of those things, right? Not to have to serve God and always wonder. We've, we've shared it a couple times within the, the, the discussion we've been having about the Trinity, right? To, to interact with a God who you always are nervous that he's mad at you for something, right? That you're, that you're uncertain of how you interact with him. Am I obedient because I'm scared? Am I obedient because he's the king? Am I obedient because he's the boss? Or, or, or something like that. And the question is to say, but there... But the gospel does something. The gospel shows us that God is willing to sacrifice of his own life to be our father, right? To welcome us into his presence. And so now we can serve him without fear, right? My children never actually have to worry that I'm going to kill them, okay? Like, I feel that way sometimes. I'm like, you better do what I told you to do or you're in trouble, right? But, but they never are in a situation where they go, you know what? Dad might just be done with us, right? He might kick us out. He might, he, he might cast us out of our family. They never have to worry about that, right? Um, I can be angry sometimes. Um, I can even be disappointed sometimes, but they are never going to be cast out. That's the same thing that we have in the gospel because God has done that, right? Um, We can serve him without fear now of, of those things. And we do that in the context of what? It says of holiness and righteousness. Holiness, that idea of being set apart for something, right? Being used for special purpose. Your life is not your own. You're not just supposed to like live your life and do whatever you want to with it now, right? Your life has been set apart for a specific purpose. You don't hammer nails with a laptop, right? Because that is a wrong tool for that job. You and your life has been set apart for special use by God now. It's for something different than it was before. And you should acknowledge that, to live in holiness. And not just holiness, but righteousness. Like, not just to be on task and set aside, but to be righteous, which means to be right with God, right? Relationally right with Him. Connected to Him. Having no division between you because of sin or rebellion or or anything else. Um, to have hearts and minds and lives that are aligned with God. Okay? That's why you were saved. That is the purpose of your salvation. All right? Not just so that you could get out of hell free, but so that you could serve Him in holiness and righteousness for all of your days. Okay, we ignore that sometimes. I mean, we don't talk that way about uh, the, the church is always, especially certain aspects of the church, have always had a problem with the idea of, man, we just got to get people in the door and we got to get them saved, right? And then we sort of ignore them after that and we let them go do whatever, right? And we don't really save them and give them a mission. We just sort of say, no, what's really important is we, is we, we get a confession out of you, right? That's not the, the idea that we see in the scriptures, right? God is saving us for something and that, that for something then will take 
um, training and, and learning and growth in holiness and righteousness and conformity to the image of Christ. And so this work of God in salvation has always been intended to redeem his people, right, to buy them back, but redeem them to something. And we start to get a glimpse of that something in this passage, right, of what Jesus is actually going to come to do. He's not just going to come and be some kind of general who freezes people militarily or politically. He's going to come and he's actually going to do something much deeper than that, okay? And we also, in this passage, get to see the prophet who is going to get to be a part of this plan too. And there's some ways in which as we read his story, we go, man, this is me in the story, okay? Obviously, you're not John the Baptist, and I'm not John the Baptist. But but there's a sense in which when we talk about the aspects of the gospel that John is interacting with, those are the aspects that we also are interacting with because it's sort of the human side of, well, what is our part to play in this thing, God? Like, what do we do? In terms of this, this, this gospel mission that you've, that you've got working in the world, okay? And so, in verse 76, he kind of shifts and he starts talking to, about John directly. So he says, and you, child, the child that has just been born, the child that we are naming here at the temple, um, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. We've already heard that. That's already been prophesied about John the Baptist. But then he elaborates, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. Okay, so John is going to prepare the way for the Lord. Recognize that John was actually already out preaching and, and, and baptizing and drawing crowds um, and teaching people about God before Jesus had even begun his public ministry, right? There was already something going on, a sort of spiritual revival that was going on in the nation of Israel before Christ even started his public ministry. And that was, that was part of John's role, right? John was there to begin to uh, till up the ground, right, to soften people's hearts, to prepare their people's, uh, the people's hearts to receive Jesus when he came and started his public ministry. And there's three specific aspects of that preparation that we see. And again, I would encourage you that I think the case is, is these are our jobs too, okay? We have a similar role in the way that we are to be a part of the gospel proclamation in the world that we see here. And so in verse 77, what was John doing? Well, first off, he was there to um, prepare people for, uh, uh, for the Lord to give knowledge of salvation to his people. Okay, so there's a distinctive role there. A prophet gives knowledge of salvation, right? He doesn't give salvation, okay? He gives the knowledge of salvation. He is one who is there to make people aware of the availability of salvation. John can't save anybody, Right? Jesus can save people, and we see that over and over again. That's part of what distinguishes him and his divinity, is that Jesus is capable of saving people. He says he's capable of saving people. He says he's capable of doing these things that only God can do. John can't do any of that stuff, right? You can't do any of that stuff. You can't save any people. And I know that's probably something that you already know, right? You're like, man, I can't save people. But it's something we need to hear and be reminded of on a regular basis, okay? Because the reality is, is we feel responsible to save people often. And you know what? We can't. You cannot save anybody. You cannot save those who are close to you. You cannot save the people you wish you could save. You can't, you're incapable. It's not within your power. All you can do is give them knowledge of salvation. You can share with them the way of salvation. You can tell them about the availability of salvation through Jesus Christ. 
it is our responsible responsibility to share that knowledge, but it's not our responsibility to save people. Okay? Two, what does it say? It says not only to give knowledge of, of salvation to his people, but what? In the forgiveness of their sins. So along with that question of what are we saved for, there is also this, the question of what are we saved from. And it doesn't take long listening to other pastors and reading books and listening to Christians talk about these issues before you realize that many of us don't have a very clear picture of what we are actually being saved from. And the answer to that is we are being saved from sin, right? Our salvation involves our forgiveness from sin. And again, on one side you might go, well, of course it does. And yet we so seldom talk about those things, right? Those are not the ways that we share the gospel with other people anymore, right? We talk a whole lot about purpose and meaning and and hope and fulfilling your potential and language like that. But we very seldomly say, Jesus Christ has come to forgive you of your sins, right? You are to turn from those sins, repent of them, acknowledge your sin and, and turn from it and be saved. But we don't talk in that language oftentimes. Now, again, it's not to say that those other things are wrong, right? God does give us purpose and meaning and hope and, and, and fulfills these things, right? Those are all real things. They're not wrong. But in, in many ways, they're not the central issue. The central issue is our sin. The central issue is our rebellion. The central issue is the fact that we have separated ourselves from God by our defiance and our disobedience. Okay, And so the issue that has to be dealt with, the issue that we have to be bought back out of, is sin. If God, again, just wanted to visit us, all we would talk about in the church is adoption, which is a legitimate picture of salvation. Right? Adoption is a part of that process. But if God was only a God of visitation, then we would say, you know what God has done? He's adopted us. He's brought us into his family, and that's it, because he loves us and he wants us to be with him. Right? That would be all we would talk about. But it's not the only piece. Right? Um, part of the problem is, is that God has also redeemed And so he has bought us out of something, and that's something he has bought us out of, that he has paid the price for, is our own sin. And so you go, okay, well, cool, Ash, so what you're saying is I need to work really hard then, right? I need to work really hard and fix this sin problem in my life and, like, just get on the straight and narrow and and stop being a jerky person or whatever, right? Nope, that's not what I'm saying, because of verse 78. Not only do this knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of sins, but what? Where does it come from? What's its source? Because of the tender mercy of our God, right? What is the source of this salvation? Where is it coming from? What is its operating principle? It's the tender mercy of our God. I love that tender is in there because you don't see that word tied to mercy all the time, right? Um, You see the word mercy a lot in Scripture, but you don't always see the word tender mercy, okay? And that shows us a little bit closer picture of the heart of God in these things, right? You need forgiveness, but you cannot fix that on your own. And the only reason why it can be made available to you is because God loves you and is merciful and gracious to you. You can't do this. You can't purchase it. You can't achieve it. You can't fix it. It is extended to you graciously as an offer of undeserved mercy. Right. So, again, a super critical piece of the gospel right there in just that little concept, the idea that these things have come to us because of God's tender mercy towards us, not because of our work, not because of something we've done, but because he has been merciful and gracious. 
And when these things happen, when we, there's almost, I'm stretching it a little bit, but there's almost a picture right there of salvation by grace through faith for our sins, right? In that picture, there's almost the, uh, the piece there, this knowledge of salvation by the grace of God for the forgiveness of our sins, right? And when those things happen, then he says, whereby the sunshine shall, the sunshine shall visit us on high. All right? We are visited again. Another picture of God coming down and visiting. This time the metaphor is the sunshine shining on us. But that sunshine is none other than Jesus Christ. Right? He is the one who is shining light and, and visiting us. Right? And that light is a light that dispels darkness. Right? It, it removes us from the shadows. In fact, specifically in verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. If, if, if you think about it, man, most of our lives are sat, uh, at least for the life of a lost person, are sat under the shadow of death. Like we do everything under this impending doom that is coming for us. And, and we, we try to ignore it sometimes, we try to distract ourselves from it, we try to dilute it, and uh, oftentimes people just try anything they can, right? They, they, they drunken themselves with, with the world and stuff and money and pleasure and, and all these things. Why? Ultimately, at the end of the day, just trying to, for a second, forget that death is coming, right? It's like you are living under its cloud all of your life. Because death is coming. Except what happens in Christ, he says, that light shines into that darkness. That we are no longer under the shadow of death. Because something has categorically changed in our lives. Right? As a virtue of being saved, being made one with Christ, we no longer fear in that way. We live lives no longer under the, the constant tension and anxiety of impending death. Right? But we live lives of freedom of service. Again, to serve without fear. Because why? Because death doesn't mean anything functionally to us anymore, right? Um, yeah, it, it still comes, and it can still be sad, and it can still be untimely, and it can still, all those things, right? But ultimately, in Christ, death is only a step, right? It's just, it's just a little hiccup in this whole story, okay? And so it's not something we live in fear of anymore. It's just something that, um, that, we, that we acknowledge is coming. You, you notice the way traditionally that different people... Um, mourn in different cultures. And I'm not sure if this is true across the board and everything, but, but certainly you notice there's some cultures where when someone dies, there's just this, this gush of emotion, right? This, this wailing and gnashing of teeth, right? Because there is this extreme sadness that has come over people, um, because of this death, right? You don't typically see that in the history of Christianity. You know why? Because death isn't as permanent, right? It's not this thing that has to be seen as this ultimate bad. For the believer, we know that in some ways it is actually a good. That, that just like Paul said, it's better to be with Christ, right? It is better to be out of this world and with Christ now. And so we don't sh- we're not worried about death. We're not scared of it the same way that we used to be. And so that's part of the, the effect of this salvation that's coming. And then lastly, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Again, to walk in peace, to walk in a life not of worry and fear, but assurance, knowing that God is with us, 
that Christ has saved us, that the Father has adopted us into his family, that the Spirit is working in us and, and encouraging us and empowering us and drawing us along. That is a picture of the gospel, right? And I think we could go back through what we just talked about and find little pieces that we leave out when we talk about the gospel, right? When we share with a lost friend or loved one or something, we don't give the whole picture a lot of times. And maybe that's just because we don't have time or circumstances don't, don't lend themselves to it or something like that. Um, but hopefully the case is that as we have longer conversations with people, that we will be able to bring all these things to bear and to say, this is the larger picture of what God has done, the way he has always worked among his people, the way that he has always come and, and attempted to save and, and to draw people close to himself. Because, again, remember how the passage, the prophecy started. The prophecy starts by Zechariah saying, Blessed be the God of Israel who has visited and redeemed his people. Right? What is happening in this moment is Zechariah is welling up with, with the awe and, and amazement of how good our God is and how he has saved us, but as we've noticed through his passage, not just generically saved us, but saved us in a way that is fitted to every single aspect of our need, right? He didn't just come to visit. He didn't just come to redeem. He doesn't just save us to something. He doesn't just save us from something. He doesn't just save us for something. Like, all of these issues come to bear so that our lives are, 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 are fully enwrapped, right? They're fully... Um, Every aspect of our need is touched by the salvation that God has brought. And so what does Zechariah do? He does what we should be doing, right? When we read a text like this, when we meditate on the salvation that has come in Jesus Christ, we should say, blessed be the God of Israel, right? Blessed be the God who has saved us to the utmost in all of these things. Blessed is he not good, right? Is he not kind? Is he not merciful and faithful to his people? Blessed be the God of Israel who has visited and redeemed us. That's the gospel, right? That is the picture of what God is doing, of how he is saving his people, the mission of Jesus Christ coming into the world, and how we are not only to be voices for that gospel, that we are a part of the work of that gospel in light of, of the mission and ministry of John the Baptist. And so as we go to prayer right now, as we, as we go to a time of meditation, just kind of reflecting on what we've talked about, um, this is what I pray, is that, again, this, this, that's what Advent is about. This season should almost be the Benedictus, right? It should be this season where our hearts are turned to the glory and blessedness of God for what he has done in sending Jesus Christ to save us and the fact that Jesus is coming again. That he is not finished even with that work of salvation. That, that, um, that we have seen a glimpse of it. That Jesus, when he comes again, will literally set all things to right. Right? There will not be then another stage where we again go, okay, well, now we've got to muddle through this thing for a little while longer and fight against our own sin and fight against a world that doesn't believe. That won't be the case anymore. That the final act will take place and the consummation of all things will, um, will happen. And so we look forward to that day and, again, say, blessed be the God of Israel. So let's just go to the Lord in prayer um, and thank him. Um, meditate on the goodness of the gospel in our lives and, and what God has done for us in those things.
Father God, you are far too good and we are far too forgetful. God, you continue to pour out your goodness and love on us. God, you make a way. You redeem us and you visit us. You come to visit us in your word. God, you visit us in the dark times of our lives, um, the times of trial and sadness. God, we, we experience your presence. We know that you are working with us because, God, you love us. We are your children and you, uh, God, you love to be with your children. God, you desire um, to be with your own, God, and to comfort and to love and to care for us. God, thank you for your multifaceted salvation. God, thank you that you have um, saved us to the utmost, that you have met us at every point of need. God, that there is no aspect of our lives that you have left untouched um, by the work of Jesus Christ, and that everything that he has done is good and true and complete and faithful and merciful. God, thank you for your grace and your mercy to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending him the first time. God, thank you for sending him again. God, and we look forward to that with anticipation um, when we can experience the fullness of the salvation that you have provided in all these things. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.